0: The West needs to understand that multipolarity is here to stay, and we need to be part of that process rather than trying to fight it and preserve unipolarity and all the financial system, all the failings in our own economy. They now have to keep printing or we crash.
1: We've got this ticking time bomb. Talking gold with the one and only Andrew McGuire. Welcome to Live from the Vault. Welcome to Life in the Vault. My name is Shane Miranda and I'll be your host for this episode and from the entire Life in the Vault team worldwide we want to thank you for your continued support and as you can imagine the community keeps growing more and more every single week and there's a lot to talk about during these historic times and Andrew McGuire is in the house with an industry expert And by popular demand, London Paul is in the house and we'll be talking gold in just a few minutes here. And it's going to be an amazing episode, so you just don't want to miss any part of this today. Uh, You know, Life in the Vault gives you access to information and updates that you just can't get anywhere else. And this episode is going to be no exception. So just before we get to talking gold with Andrew McGuire and our special guest, London Paul, please help spread the word about this channel by hitting that like button, sharing, subscribing, and click on the bell if you'd like to be notified in real time as each episode goes live. Let me introduce our special guest, London Paul. He's best known for the Sirius Report, which is an independent website providing analysis and an alternative perspective on the current affairs and global events that he believes that are shaping the new political, economic, and social paradigm. And Paul's been... You know, he's had a long track record of accurate predictions and analysis from geopolitical and economic affairs. And with that, let's head over to the UK and talking gold with the one and only Andrew Maguire and our special guest, London Paul. Over to you. Well, Paul, this is actually a real pleasure
2: for me. I've heard of you and seen your work for some years uh, and uh, really, this is something I think a bit of a, a treat for our subscribers, because um, you go to places uh, that that perhaps we don 't always go to. I mean we cover very similar sort of area of of of, 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 of what 's going on uh, i e gold and silver is a big focus for us but But Paul, I think something that would be really interesting uh, if we could open up with because many years ago. Um, you laid out the outline for really for a multipolar world. And I think a lot of people don't really understand w- what that means. It looks, but and you were so far ahead of the curve. And I think it's important that you explain to our subscribers, you know, where this kind of demise of unipolarity is ultimately leading to. So if you could kind of open there, Paul, because I think that's your bellywick. That's something that really you own.
0: Well, thank you for saying that. And obviously, thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure. So, yeah, let's kind of go back in, in history. Now, in the kind of late 1990s, though, and these are Western people, by the way, they have been long assessing, which for me started probably in the 1980s when the US and the UK particularly, and you'll know this very well, we went through this let's have financialization of economies which was ultimately a disaster and was kind of the precursor to why we are where we are today effectively now they were obviously assessing this through the 80s and 90s and they went to the chinese and the russians in the late 90s at that time and said some look you know we in our opinion think that the days of us hegemony the us dollar are in the kind of last legs now. When we say last legs, that could mean two decades, four decades, whatever. But we think you need to start making moves to be uh, that will, effectively, from the Chinese perspective. You know, you need to. Hence, why they joined the World Trade Organization in two thousand and one, and and also to kind of reignite the old Silk Road, which became the One Belt One Road and becomes the Belt Road Initiative. And I'm sure everyone's heard about that. I know there's a lot of different opinions on what that means, but we'll come on to that in a second. So from the Russian perspective, they were coming out obviously of the collapse of what was the Soviet Union then, obviously Russia collapsed, the Yeltsin era. And interestingly, of course, Yeltsin was just grooming Putin as the future president. And of course, the rest is kind of history in the sense that if you go through the dot com era. That was the first big indication when that collapsed, and who knows? Is a trillion plus dollars of money was just vaporized, capital destruction we'd not seen before. And then we went through two thousand and eight. So, in essence, these people were completely vindicated in their perspective that U.S. or Germany, the U.S. dollar and unipolarity, the Western empire, maybe for want of a better word, had kind of was in its death throes and 2008 was a very clear understanding that there were serious problems and they made the wrong decisions in 2008 i actually wrote to western governments myself and said don't do qe zero interest rate policy for more than a few months or you stick with it long term there is no way out of it and you will end up blowing everything up one way or the other of course they probably didn't even read what I said, or if someone did, they threw it in the bin and thought it was ridiculous. But where this ties in, I, 2010, kind of two, middle-ish of 2010, I am to meet these people who were the architects of what I call multipolarity. And I don't like using the word reset anymore because people are associated with all sorts of connotations of some dystopian plan to enslave humanity, but In essence, it was multipolarity. And they laid out in very broad terms from their perspective, okay, we we see the end of unipolarity, the US dollar, US hegemony, and we see multipolarity, which is the rise of multiple poles. So they said, you know, Asia, ultimately the Middle East, Africa, you know, typical traditional allies, strike vassal states of the United States, like Saudi Arabia would rotate east to China and Russia, and that's very clearly happening now. And they talked about alternative currencies. At that point, of course, we weren't really talking about maybe asset-backed cryptocurrencies, central bank digital currencies, but the perspective was, look, fiat's had its day. And in some capacity, we're going to see the return of sound money. And I think from my perspective, that's self-evident that, that that's coming back, how that works in the world is probably not clear, and the reason it isn't clear is because people are assuming that if the dollar isn't the world reserve currency, some other currency has to be, and it doesn't. We're in an age we don't need a world reserve currency anymore. So we can have all these poles sort of grown So in Asia, you've got the ASEAN Nations, uh, you've got the Eurasian Economic Union, which is Russia and some of the sort of former uh, Soviet republics. You've got the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, and all these kind of embryonic poles, effectively, in these various different jurisdictions in the world, they can potentially have their own asset-backed currency. It could be a central bank digital currency, and it's for international trade. And it makes eminent sense because it's a lot cheaper, it's a lot more efficient, uh, and it's a lot quicker. And there's a realization that, we need to move away from this Western-centric financial system. And it really, this isn't a political statement. Whatever people's perspective on the Ukraine war is, it was very damaging to the United States because they made a spectacularly bad decision to say, we're excluding Russia's central bank from SWIFT and we're going to effectively confiscate forex reserves, hundreds of billions. We don't really know exactly what it is. The reason it was a big mistake is because China and Russia had spent a long time building the multipolar world, which has accelerated particularly ironically since the Ukraine made down in 2014. The first indication of that was the so-called Holy Grail energy deal between the Chinese and the Russians, the power of Siberia gas uh, pipeline, Mark 1, there's two now in in progress or in discussion anyway. And the consequence of... The policy decision when the Ukraine war started in February was the global south, which is effectively everyone except the United States or North America, uh, Europe, and you might sort of obviously include Australia, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, maybe Singapore. They all sat there and went, hang on a minute. If if we as nations upset the United States, will they cut us off from SWIFT? Well, they steal our Forex reserve, and this has accelerated, and we've seen huge amounts of developments come about since the Ukraine war because nations are now going, well, that was a red line crossed in trust. Not saying there was necessarily a huge amount of trust in the U.S. Some of it was largely fear-based why nations were doing what they did. But they looked at this and went, this is not acceptable. So it was a very, very poor strategic mistake, which is now having serious consequences for US Germany for the US dollar. And this is why we're seeing Saudi Arabia, for example, who you know, historically we know underpin the petrodollar, who's now looking and saying, well, we're not actually interested in US's interest to try, because the US has been trying to drive the oil price down. And the Saudis and the Russians, which is OPEC plus, have sat there and said, well, we're just making decisions in the interest of OPEC plus. And we're not interested if the United States wants to try and smash the oil price by releasing reserve from the strategic petroleum reserves or however else they're trying to manipulate the oil markets. And these are big sort of fundamental changes that have been in the works for a number of years. It's not like it's suddenly sprung out of nowhere, but What's given it gravitas and momentum is ironically the Ukraine war where I think effectively the West thought we'll isolate Russia and it's had the reverse effect. The global South's unified with Russia and of course the principal thing that benefits Russia is it has enormous amounts of resources not just oil and gas and this is very advantageous for for obviously the global South to have cheaper energy. So we, we know India's been a big beneficiary, China's going to have more uh, Russian gas, etc., etc., And there's pipelines being built and more LNG tankers to ship energy to, uh, the de- to the detriment, obviously, of Europe potentially going forward and to the benefit of the global south. But that's where I kind of sat down in with these people. We had this chat and I went, well, we're not seeing the developments now, but sort of For me, ironically, the Ukraine made down in 2014 and that energy deal where they quietly said it's going to be in non-dollar terms. For me, that was the moment where I said, Okay, I can really see some significant developments coming now. And sort of 2015 onwards, I went, Okay, this is the multipolar world plan. In broad in broad terms, these are the objectives. And really it was to move out of the dollar to and also to get out the Western financial system, which anyone after 2008 must have said, hang on, this is serious problems. And and in essence, so they could trade freely, they could cooperate freely outside the influence of the dollar and and the US and the Western empire in, in a broader sense. And that's why I made all these statements. And six years ago, I had a lot of people getting in touch saying, this is ridiculous, this will never happen. But there was a the momentum behind it. The, the people said to me in 2010, this is going to happen and no one will believe it until it happens. And even when it does happen, they still won't believe it. So we've gone through a few points here, but I have to, it's worth into sort of locking all these or putting them all together to build a bigger picture and not just go, well, I had this conversation and then this happened and here we are today. It's worth putting a little bit of sort of added information into to the understanding of that.
2: Absolutely, Paul. This is great. Absolutely brilliant.
0: So, yeah, I think that's probably a good point to stop. I mean, otherwise, if I carry on, you'll never get another question in and I'll be talking non-stop for the rest of the evening. It's going to. So, no, Paul, let's stop. Paul, that.
2: I didn't mean to interrupt you. This is actually this is this is perfect because this is exactly I mean, you're you're, you're nailing um, the, 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 the major pivots here the major pivot points. And, and I think, you know, a lot of head scratching going on people, you know, scratch the surface of, of what's going on on a very short term basis, but you need to pull back for a minute and, and look at the bigger picture. It, it always helps. It's like climbing the highest tree, isn't it? You have to look at your surroundings and you, you've just, you've just nailed some very important things that, uh, that have changed the world, um, i mean as as we know it and 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 you know this ukraine uh, russia um situation geopolitical blow up uh, the sanctions more than anything as you say uh, taking a, a country off the swift system uh, i mean the the fallout from that hasn't even started yet and and what do you think china thought about that when they're eyeing taiwan i mean just give us some thought more thoughts on that um paul
0: yeah, I mean I kind of said the United States sees China and Russia as major adversaries, and I'm being quite diplomatic in that, because they see them as the the sort of focal point of multipolarity. They they kind of feel if well if if Russia okay, it was Russia's decision, we know ultimately. Okay, there's a big backstory, but Russia made the decision to invade Ukraine and start a war. And the belief was in the West, look, if we impose sanctions, it'll crush Russia rapidly. Putin will be gone. The economy will collapse. The ruble will collapse. Russia will be isolated on the world stage. And then the feeling is, well, if Russia's out of play in terms of multipolarity, China will just get cave in and won't, uh, you know, entertain any ideas of trying to proceed with multipolarity, even though that is a bit of an ignorant viewpoint. And the flip side, yeah, with, with Taiwan is... It's very much the same trying to go China. So the viewpoint is, well, if we get China into a war, then potentially we can sanction China. And, of course, the Chinese are looking at all this going, well, yes, you're trying to goad us into a war with with Taiwan. And we know what you intend to do with sanctions. So is it any surprise in recent months China's dumped hundreds of billions of U.S. treasuries? Because the same perspective is. We don't want to get caught out with hundreds of billions of treasuries that are sat somewhere else in some, some part of the world where they'll be frozen, the, our assets get frozen. Or maybe you'll freeze the PBOC, the, the Chinese Central Bank, out of SWIFT, et cetera. So we need to start taking serious action. And the same also applies for the European Union, who's now threatening to to utilize frozen Russian assets. Uh, to to kind of refinance Ukraine the optics are horrendous the global south's going hang on do we want to trade with the European Union I mean they don't seem to understand that the trust or the lack of trust that these kind of decisions are making have far-reaching consequences so for sure you can draw parallels between China and Taiwan and uh, China and Ukraine but geographically geopolitically it's a very different situation taiwan's an island it's actually heavily dependent on russia for energy through through pipelines uh, that go through the straits of taiwan etc and also the Chi- the taiwanese people are not as are not anti chinese like the west tries to make out and there was recent local elections where the the ruling party suffered very heavy defeats uh, and they were sort of moving on this ticket of independence from china etc and the people rejected it so that's a complicated subject but what's very clear is from the chinese and the russian perspective is they have been joined at the hip for a, a long time there's this idea that somehow that they're, they're only have a marriage of convenience actually the first attempt You know, China will stab Russia in the back or vice versa. This is the biggest misunderstanding in the West. Nothing could be further from the truth. They fully cooperate on international matters. They fully cooperate in terms of working for win-win cooperation in terms of their own economies. And obviously, what we're now seeing is an acceleration of, I wouldn't call it the development. People are going, well, Russia and China are looking at developing an alternative financial system. They've had this financial system in place for six years. It's been there. It's not in development. It already exists. It's just a question of you don't just dive in feet first. You have to say, okay, how do we utilize this system? We have to make sure it's fully robust because there might be a situation where other countries, the BRICS nations might want to utilize this. The ASEAN nations, okay, we're, we're sort of speculating a bit, but that, uh system is being in place it's being tested and that obviously is outside swift it allows the russians and the chinese to trade in the ruble and the yuan and again it's part of de-dollarization and it goes back to what i said in 2014 when they made their intentions very clear this is a major energy deal and it will be conducted in the yuan they said at that point now it's yuan and rubles so this was one of those developments where again Trying to push China into a corner is not a sensible idea. The reason it's not a sensible idea for the West is as much as people go, well, what China just exports cheap goods to the West. Well, yeah, we need those cheap goods, whether because if we don't get them from China, the idea, well, we'll move operations somewhere else in, in Asia. It's not that simple. This takes five, 10 years to achieve. And to some degree, some of the operations actually moved out of China to Vietnam with cooperation between the Chinese and the Vietnamese, because obviously there was all the risk of, of this trade war and it's spilling over into sort of quasi-sanctions or some kind of actual sanctions. So there's cooperation in the in the ASEAN nations to actually allow Chinese goods rebadged to be sold from Vietnam, for example. But at the moment, whether we like it or not, we're dependent on Chinese goods, rather like Europe should have realized it was dependent on Russian energy and you can't just switch that off and and go and buy the energy from somewhere else. That's not how the world operates as we, as we both know. And also the failure in the West is to understand that they're not going to crush China. China's problems, and we'll come on to that because I think it's interesting, but, but China for a number of years has been rotating its economy. And there's a process called dual circulation which effectively means we're going to become more consumption based because chinese people their standard of living is rising and they want better quality of goods so china's going okay we're going to become more consumption based but we're going to start to move away from selling cheap goods to the west we want to become more high-tech and it's a process again it happens over a number of years or a a decade or whatever so they're changing their economy in the west thinks well, we could sanction China and, and cut off their access to our markets. But it's, again, it's the same principle. Where are you going to get the goods if you don't get them from China? They, they don't exist. So immediately then you're starting to create producer price inflation and, and general inflation, rather like cutting yourself off from Russian energy and then going, hang on, we don't get Russian energy, but now we're going to go and buy it from the US five times the price. Well, it's a statement of the obvious what's going to happen. it Energy is the lifeblood of a nation. So it's this miscalculation of the West. And the point about China is uh, I've seen for too many years, every year China's going to collapse because of its enormous debt the West thinks it has, even though internally one government department owns another government department. The debt that's not, no one owns any debt to anyone. And the other, the fundamental problems China has actually, and We've seen it in the last week or so when they've had this zero COVID policy and eventually people have reached breaking point. Okay, there's a bit of a concern over some of the protests, but by and large, there has been some protests uh, over a number of cities. And what do the Chinese come out? Suddenly they're looking like they're going to abandon zero COVID policy Uh, because the one thing in China is, and I know having spent time there is, If the people want something, then generally the Chinese government, and this will really surprise people, will actually acquiesce, go, okay, we have to. So, hence why they're now changing their COVID policy, because they're worried that these protests could end up with 100 million people protesting. It could destabilize the government. So, they quickly make a policy U turn. And that's certainly the case that if, and it's very, easy to understand it but in one sense you've got a nation of 1.4 billion people if you upset the people too much a government will even a government like china's will not survive if the if the masses protest and, and want to overthrow the government now that will surprise people because of how they think the chinese government operates but this is why Chinese people are demanding better standards of living, higher wages, etc., And that's why we've seen hundreds of millions of people moved out of poverty into what you would term Chinese middle class. China has huge problems for sure internally and particularly how it needs to in- change how it interacts with the West, how it opens its markets. And, and also, yes, it does have a demographic problem. Uh, but the idea that Chinese internal debt's going to collapse China, rather like everyone said, Evergrande was China's layman moment. And I said at the time, that will never happen. And here we are over 12 months later. That's not the case. So I think the focus in China is, should be less on what most of the West perspective is and actually acknowledging that, yeah, China has challenges and, and an enormous challenge it has is if he wants to internationalize the UN, if it wants to put itself effectively out there as, as a responsible custodian for the global south, it's going to have to make a lot of more decisions. It's going to have to make decisions that may pose risks for China. I mean, as we say, one of the things is is opening up its markets and, uh, and trying to internationalize the yuan. That does pose risks to them. But... You know, they can't sit there and say, well, we want to internationalize the UN and don't allow that process to happen. So these are fundamental challenges they face going forward. In terms of the the governance structure itself, of course, from the West, absolutely. Everybody's going, it's a one party state. Yes, it is a one party state. No, it's not democracy as we know it. Um, And I don't think we'll see democracy in China anytime soon as we perceive it to be. But ironically, and this is something that perhaps isn't clear, China's political system in some senses hugely benefits the country, and this is why, because they make 5, 10, 15, 20, 50-year plans, and they stick to them, and they don't have the political system. We have where you might get a government for four or five years, and then the government's gone, and the other government comes in and scraps all the plans, and we start from scratch or... And we don't actually make material progress. So that's why China has made progress. Why, you know, if you look in the last 20 years, and and this isn't an endorsement of China as a government or anything, it's just it's made enormous progress in terms of of trade, in terms of of its standing in the world, in terms of how now it is seen as a, a reliable partner, whether we agree or not, in the global south. And these have been this rapid transition. And you look at Shenzhen, it was a fishing village. Look at it now today. That's just one example of the progress they've made. And I often get people, and I'll make this point thinking I'm a big cheerleader for Beijing. I'm not a cheerleader for anybody. I'm just stating China's made this progress. We have to acknowledge this. And from my perspective, the West needs to understand that. Multipolarity is here to stay, and we need to be part of that process, rather than trying to fight it and preserve unipolarity and all the financial system, all the failings in our own economy. And work—I mean, working with Russia is going to be extremely difficult, virtually impossible. But Europe is a bit fragmented on its approach to to China. There are elements in Brussels who are wholly supportive of it. There are nations who aren't. There are elements who are resistant and want to decouple from China. But again, we're not in a position to decouple from China at the moment. We might be in 5, 10, 15 years. But by then, we might not be even needing to decouple from China because China's economy will have changed completely and we won't be trading with them the way we were anyway. So these are sort of, for me, the interesting aspects of how multipolarity is rising. Unipolarity is declining rapidly. And how those two worlds interact to some degree and how they they operate completely independently. And they're both very interesting, the coexistence and the independence. And watching the rise of one and the decline of the other. Now, unfortunately for us in the West, the decline of unipolarity has consequences which we're all aware of.
2: You know, and and this is so interesting, and especially why we're on China here as well, because I think a lot of people forget <clears throat> that that China is a military enemy of the U.S. And, and, and clearly, um, aside from that, um, they also have an enormous influence as to... I mean, the, the, obviously, the deficit between China and the U.S. is... is it says it all. Uh-huh. But, but, I mean, but basically, with such a large exporter, as such a large exporter... China has the financial power to control price inflation globally. I mean, we have to be very careful um, how we deal with, as you say, these major powers, because these are and and I have friends and I talk about military side of it. I have very close friends in the military who say, my God, really, we wouldn't want to go up against China. The weaponry systems exceed anything that, for example, the British Navy has. And, and so it's interesting, you know, this is, this is a change in structure, but it seems like no one's waking up to
0: this. No, and that's for me. Well, I have to say from from the serious report perspective, it's kind of interesting, but the Ukraine war, our, our profile exploded when the Ukraine war started. It's kind of bizarre, but I think it's because we talked about things and then this happened and people start to go, oh, hang on. I remember there was this guy who was talking about these things but but for sure I mean but I'll give you some interesting because obviously I'm a big devotee of gold and silver, everybody knows that and but i'll let you I'll tell you a couple of very interesting stories about um China and gold now, in twenty twelve there was a period for two and a half years, and we everyone's talked about this big migration of gold from west to east i mean this has been self-evident but the reason i mention this in 2012 for two and a half years every month so 30 months there was a thousand metric tons of gold going from west to east that wasn't on the official books and no one knew it was happening that's 30,000 tons the other point worth making is in 20 early 2016 the rush the chinese were planning on making an announcement of a gold-backed yuan, but the Americans told them, if you do, it's a declaration of war. So they said, okay, we're not doing it now. So you can see, you go back over nearly seven years ago, they already had designs on a gold-backed yuan, and it's interesting, only about two or three months ago, very quietly, someone in the higher upper echelons of, of Beijing and the government said, made the point gold will be a very important feature of the financial system in the future. So we can read many different uh, contexts perhaps into that. But there are just a couple of interesting stories that with regards to the fact that China's gold reserves, and I've said this many times and people go, hang on, I can't believe this, but China has about 40,000 tons of gold. And I know people who know that this is the case. And if you look at just the 30,000 tons that went east, okay, I'm not saying it all stayed in China. Some went to Hong Kong, but a lot went to China. We know China, all its gold production stays inside China. It never leaves. And unofficially, it's probably near 600 metric tons a year. And this has been going on for a long time. So you can just start to do the maths and go, hang on. They have considerably more than than conventional wisdom would suggest the russians have enormous gold reserves and a lot of that actually stems from the Tsar era as well which wasn't known iran has very large gold reserves as well and again that's not sort of some sort of conventional wisdom would would understand that but the reason i mention this kind of movement of gold from west to east is the fact that we've seen in recent years that's very much the case and we're seeing central banks buying huge amounts of gold even the poles and the hungarians were but also in the middle east and and in the far east and the stan republics etc and a lot of this obviously is the global south not entirely because they understand that in some context or other sound money is going to is going to return okay there's a lot of deliberation what does that mean and uh, how is that going to to function and people are often trying to relate it to gold standards in the past I don't think that's necessarily a wise observation to make the world's very different it remains to be seen because I've heard in the last 10 years so many well it looks like it could be this and then two years later no it's not going to be that and obviously the Ukraine war has changed perspectives And I mean the, the BRICS was always going to gradually enlarge but now there's 20 nations wanting to join that changes the dynamic. Okay, you want to have a BRICS currency for international trade. How, how is that changed from when it was just the BRICS? And massively so. I mean, it it will be backed by commodities. It will probably have a weighting of countries in the BRICS. There is supposed to be a gold component to it, but at the moment it's very unclear the precise detail. But again, it's it doesn't really matter whether we try to assess. We can go have 20 different ideas and they're all could be wrong. So I don't really worry too much about what the composition will be because this is a very fluid situation. And the same could be applied for the Asian nations could could have their own um, commodity-backed currency for international trade or trade amongst themselves. But this is all clearly outside SWIFT, outside the dollar, and it's going to have commodity backing now. It's unclear, probably if you'd asked me five, ten years ago, uh, what you know the, the common sense thing would have been it would probably just be gold back. But the world's changed rapidly, and the Ukraine war changed people's perspectives when they suddenly went, hang on. Maybe the, there's still a role for oil. Maybe there's a role for other commodities because Russia can now sell commodities in rubles, and the world's going, okay, we have to buy it in rubles. The, the Europe particularly was very angry about this, but and okay, they're weaning themselves off the energy, but but it changed perspectives, it changed attitudes, and and therefore we have to see what the composition will be in the future. But it's very much a move away from uh, the dollar, of course. The dollar is will largely really rather than just imploding, I think it's more just this, but an a rapid acceleration of de dollarization. And rather than just somehow the dollar dies overnight, okay, there's the, the issue of fiat currencies and ultimately the fate of fiat currencies, and we all know where that's ultimately going. But, uh, but I think they were interesting points because it kind of ties in that, again, the big rotation of gold from west to east has been going on for a decade, and even longer to a lesser extent. Not, it's not something that just happened maybe in the last two or three years that people might think that's the case.
2: And you've mentioned numbers, Paul, that we totally concur with. I mean, <clears throat> you know, we've been obviously we, we have our finger on the pulse as well. Uh, have liquidity providers that are that are really first tier, and and we know for sure that there's been a huge migration of gold, um, as you say, thousand tons. It, it, it could easily be that we we already thought thirty thousand, possibly forty thousand tons, versus the. Eight thousand three hundred rehypothecated tons um, sitting in, um, and, and I say rehypothecated in, in, in the US because um, you have to sort of draw conclusions when you say uh, when, when, for example, Germany asked for a measly three hundred tons back, and it was going to take seven years to repatriate that, I, and it, and it, it sort of ludicrous situation. So, and and then you've got you've got real uh, real assets. Um, and, of course, we're talking about, um, uh, I mean, we, we interviewed uh, Dan- Daniela DiMartino Di Booth, who was a Fed insider. She said, uh-huh. you know, I promise you, the Fed has never mentioned gold in the entire time that nobody, no Fed, in, Fed insiders are even talking about gold. Well, now you've talked, the, you've got the polar opposite here in in military mites of Russia, China, uh, Russia openly openly divesting its dollars into gold um, uh, China doing it surreptitiously uh, and the, obviously the state held banks is probably where it 's all salted in, and one day they could just with a click like that uh, re, you know back up their currency at some point should it suit them and and certainly it would suit them if the, if uh, they were sanctioned in 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 some serious way or similar to what happened to to russia so really interesting what you're saying here because you know we're talking about uh, sound money talking about 5000 years of of proven money and it's it's migrating from paper markets from the paper markets the generated paper markets has been alchemized essentially into physical in in, in powers that people don't understand this, this, this shift that you're talking about here is right in front of our faces, but people don't focus on this stuff. This is really interesting stuff, Paul. I'm really glad you're covering this.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, I think another point. Look, I, I mean, anyone who has interest or significant interest in gold and has any kind of profile of any description, I get endless questions about the gold price and silver price thing. and we know the paper price bears no resemblance to physical reality but i was asked a question ironically in a completely different environment in 2013 you know because we had gone through the peak of sort of gold and silver and and then the price was declining in dollar terms and someone said to me well when when's gold going to reach all-time highs and And I made the point then and I've stood by it ever since. Look, there's so much paper manipulation, it will only happen when the West is effectively drained of metal. And I apply that also to silver. And when I say drained of metal, I don't mean none of us in the West have an ounce of gold or silver, it means the what you would call the the supply for the market, which also ties in of course with paper, when the demand Way exceeds the supply, and I'll come on to why why I've mentioned this is at that point when when the paper markets break, then we'll see true price discovery. Until that happens, you won't. And unfortunately, from my from people's perspective, they lost heart with gold and silver. But for me, it's an insurance policy against everything. If the house is burning down, which we know it is burning down, and you can still take an insurance policy out at a very affordable price in relative terms, and that's just, for me, that's not investment advice, it's a statement of fact, then you would buy it. But the point with regards to to why we won't really see true price discovery until effectively the demand and the supply becomes untenable is, and we, we can all theorize as to the reality of the COMEX and the LBMA, But what I liken it to is it's a bit like a bank run. There might be situations where there are economic problems or a serious financial event or a serious geopolitical event. And there's there's people who have effectively, from their perspective, and this is a huge sort of thorny subject, but, you know, they may have gold and silver at the comments. And I'm quite happy for it to stay there. Now, there's, it's questionable with all the rehypothecation, and we know, and that's this is not a new story. Everybody knows this. But there comes a pinch point where some event happens, and then you kind of get a bank run where everybody wants to withdraw their gold and silver, arguably. Then when they can't do that because they don't have the supply and the demand is off-scale because huge amounts of the supplies gone east or gone somewhere else in the world then they have a huge problem then you've got your force majeure moment then that's the moment when the paper markets will implode and the it won't be sustainable and then that's the moment we get price discovery now of course the argument is for years when's it going to happen when's it going to happen and we've kind of people have had false dawns with this but I'm not saying we're at that point now, but 2022 has been a very interesting in terms of the further drain, not just of gold, but of silver. And one of the big changes in the silver market was the Indians buying I think get annualized 11,000 tons, about a third of global silver production, you know, roughly speaking, annually. That's a huge problem. That's a massive drain of physical metal. The other thing worth noting in 2020 and 2021 during the brunt of the pandemic, who was buying up every single commodity it could get its hand on? China, copper, silver, aluminium, gold, everything in as much quantities as they could buy when everyone else didn't want to touch it because they were more focused on, on trying to survive a pandemic and printing trillions of dollars or whatever they were doing. They were buying it and they put it in strategic reserves that are a matter of national security. So no one knows what the stockpiles are. And you get these figures occasionally. They've released so many tonnage or whatever, of aluminium or copper or something. But we don't know in reality what actual tonnage they have. And that's where the official tonnage of gold in, in the PBOC lies. And they're never going to divulge it, as you say, until the moment when it's appropriate to divulge it. But I think it's it's an interesting to to make what I've just said because it sort of also helps to put things in context. that as time progresses and more and more metal heads east there comes a point when the markets and the the paper markets will break and I think this year's been a big step forward. Does it mean it breaks tomorrow or next week? We don't know. And I don't really particularly bothered. When it breaks, when it breaks, it'll break when it's got, when it matters. I've always, might sound a bit of a weird statement. I've always said the paper markets will die when it matters, meaning it matters then that you hold sound money, that you have sound assets given what we logically understand is coming. So that's when, and so when it matters, you'll preserve your wealth. And it's more about wealth preservation. Holding gold and silver. Okay, silver has a very big industrial component and will do so more and more in the future. Of course, that's true. But it's more about holding this to, so whatever happens against all scenarios, you have a way of protecting your wealth. And then the flip side is I always get people saying, Well, when would you sell gold? I mean, it's all well and good holding it, but when, and I've used this analogy that because we know paper assets or financial assets are ridiculously overpriced. let look at the housing market. I mean, the housing bubble is ludicrous. So let's say today that you want to buy a house, uh, 300,000 pounds. And just to make the math simple, gold's at $2,000 an ounce or pounds an ounce. So it costs you 150 ounces to buy a house. Now in the future, when, financial assets actually reach the proper equilibrium, I think you could arguably and conservatively say the house you could buy it for two hundred thousand, maybe hundred and fifty thousand. I mean in Japan in the late eighties property prices fell I think eighty percent or something like that. So even fifty percent reduction is now isn't an outrageous claim. But let's just say two hundred thousand to keep the math simple. And let's say for argument's sake in the future Gold's priced at £10,000 an ounce. There's your purchasing power. You can go and buy the same house for 20 ounces of gold. And it's the time when we have some stability in financial assets, some stability in market. Because there's no point saying, well, actually, gold's at $100,000 a pound an ounce today. But hang on, what the hell's going on in the world? No, you don't sell gold in the middle of that chaos. You wait for stability, and at some point, That's when your purchasing power will come to the fore. And I've always used that simple analogy as, for me anyway, at least, that's the time when I would say, okay, I'll then go and sell some gold and buy financial assets again because they actually bear reality to the reality of the world because we know since 2008 the divergence between asset prices as what they should be and what they are is absolutely ludicrous. And it's not just in in real estate. It's in equities it's in bonds it's everywhere it's a complete ludicrous financial bubble which is the point i made to western governments this is what you'll create and it become un- totally unsustainable and it's not rocket science why we are where we are today it's an inevitability and a consequence of what happens with artificially low interest rates and just pumping uh, endless printed money and of course, the pandemic made it even worse because they kept all the inflation in these financial asset bubbles, and then ludicrously they went, "Oh, it doesn't matter if we print trillions of money and put it in the real economy, because it didn't cause inflation in the real economy from 2008 to 2020." Well, no, because you kept it in these financial bubbles; it were not in the in in Main Street. You've just put it in Main Street. What do you think the consequences are going to be? And they genuinely didn't seem to understand this, but that is as much a criticism of, of policymakers in the West in their complete ignorance of seeing things that for me is just basic, either economics or finance.
2: Yeah. And, and you just outlined a very, very important point. And, and ultimately talked about, you know, the price of gold, you know, ultimately any commodity Gold, silver, whatever the commodity is, there's plenty at the right price. Yes. <laughs> it's just that it's the wrong price, and and so and, and naturally there will be an organic level. Um, depending on what's going on around the rest of the um, global sphere, um, there'll be a a price level. I mean, there'll be somebody that will wanna sell it and there'll be someone that wants to buy it. And it'll be physical, it won't be paper, it'll have to have no counterparty risk. And so that's the only kind of gold I can think of. But the interesting thing is, by crikey, when it does happen, Paul, and of course, you know, who's got this gold? It ain't the average US citizen who has maybe an ounce in jewelry. What about the Indian farmer? And I always bring this analogy of this: the Indian farmer cycling down a dusty path with kilos of gold from dowries and, and accumulation who's never for sale, but it's there as an asset. What happens when the price, when you've just described the house prices coming down, you could suddenly buy a house for 10 Maybe fifteen, twenty ounces of gold. I mean, what? Ha- who's going to be buying these houses? Who's going to be out of these houses? This is an interesting dynamic, which is so missed by people who are just focused on depreciating fiat currencies. How much have I got? How much is in the bank? Oh, so what? It's depreciating. My God, we well, you know this is an interesting time, and we always end every episode. And and <laughs> Robert Kiyosaki started us doing it. He ended up by saying, and we always end up by saying, but how much physical do you own? And that's usually where we end.
0: No, but it's true. And you make, there's a great point to make about this. And we've known historically for a long time, the Indians love affair with gold, increasing actually now they're getting a love affair with silver as well, which is interesting. But China, the same. I mean. For all the criticisms people will levy at the, the Chinese government, they're always encouraging their citizens to buy gold. This is and tellingly, since the, the start of the Ukraine war, the uptake in Russians buying gold is accelerating as well, very interestingly. And yeah, the flip side is that the people in the West predominantly and sadly don't appreciate, sound money, don't understand Yeah, currency, they don't understand the difference between currency and money and simple things like that. And it's absolutely a valid point that there comes a time, and and this is where it will get interesting because if all the gold heads east uh, and gets to a point where the critical mass is that the West effectively is out of, of, of gold. Let's just use gold as an example. And then for some reason, suddenly someone in the West decides, actually, we need gold. And as you say, gold is always available at the right price. So at that point, what does China do? China can say, well, if you want the gold back, fine, but this is the price you're going to pay if you want some gold. And that's the big difference. And and that's why I always make the point as well, is that for people who think the dollar's here for decades to come, and well, I'm not saying it will happen today or tomorrow, but if China comes out and says, like they were proposing to do in twenty sixteen, we're backing the Yuan with gold, and we'll make a brief point about that shortly, because people say that's impossible, but we'll explain very briefly why that's not the case. If they did that, the dollar's toast, it's over. Because the the, the, the run out of dollar and dollar denominated assets would be enormous. And just to put, brief points as well with regards to the psychology of buying gold. And I always say gold is suppressed against the dollar because if gold was at $2,500 an ounce for argument's sake, you'd see enormous institutional interest because they'd be going, I don't have any confidence in the dollar or dollar-denominated asset. But if you suppress the price and you talk to big institutional investors not all of them they'll go well what's the problem Gold's seventeen i'm not concerned about it there's nothing wrong with the dollar there's nothing wrong with the paper market there's nothing wrong with dollar denominated assets so it's a psychology whereas retail investors are, are going at 12 1300 this is a steal for some people okay it's a matter of perspective or your own kind of belief in this so it's a very different perspective between big institutional investors or high net worth individuals and retail investors as to the psychology, obviously, of, of holding gold. And I think that's an important point to make as well. But in general, what my my observation about this is, is there will come a point when gold will be repriced. I don't know, and I really I'm not particularly concerned, I mean, we. I've heard lots of stories over the years. I've heard lots of projections and they could be accurate. I mean, they may not be, but but the point is, if China reprices gold, and this was the the point about where people say they can't do it, well, A, people don't know how much gold China's got, and B, they can just say, well, we've got this much gold and we need to raise the price to this. So we're going to do that. And then they can back their currency with gold. And then, of course, there's all the idea, well, then China has to balance its books. But China's balancing its books. It's the West that is abused It's it's uh, and lived beyond its means for far too long is the ones that are going to have to rebalance their books. And for the global South, it's far less of a problem. And, of course, they're going to be able to to exploit their commodity base they're going to be able to trade with each other in far more productive ways outside the dollar outside us and Germany. so it's kind of win-win for them and, it, and we're going to see huge growth in africa and okay africa has huge problems but the next 10 20 years they're going to be a gigantic pole. i've made the point in 20 30 years i think africa will be the biggest economic financial pole on the planet it has okay it might take 50 years but it has so much potential. It's got enormous problems and challenges to overcome. But imagine that as a dynamic pole, Asia, the Middle East doing what the Middle East can do, South America. And and then all of a sudden you're going, well, what's the West got to offer? So the West is going to have to change its game. Huge is going to have to get on board with this. If it doesn't, the rest of the world can go, well, actually we don't need you. And how are you going to survive? Where are you going to get your cheap energy from? Where are you going to be able to buy cheap commodities? How how are you going to change the dynamic of your economies and your financial system so you can fit in with our world? No one, very few people in the West are thinking about this, and these governments are still thinking it's U.S. hegemony Germany for the next fifty years or longer, and it's, you know, it's the same problem in the U.K. People think we're still this gigantic colonial power with a lot of clout in the world and we don't anymore. And we need to start facing realities of how we're going to have to change in the West to fit in with the world because we can't just go, well, we're ignoring you because it's 88 percent of the world's population. You know, it's, it's a huge uh, landmass. It has enormous amounts of resources collectively. It has very low, low cost metrics for production and manufacturing it has a really positive uh, demographic okay china is an exception and japan perhaps but but predominantly it has a very good demographic so it's ideally set for the future and the west is is so ill prepared and it hasn't learnt any lessons from 1980s financialization through the dot-com era through 2008 and all the repo crisis 2019 and all the problems they have self-inflicted because of their policy 2020 when they went, if we don't give everyone trillions of dollars and just bail everything out, the West will collapse. At that moment it should have gone, hang on, that's not how it should be. We shouldn't have to be in a position to do that to stop the West effectively functioning in any capacity whatsoever. Which it would have done if they just not bailed everything out, who knows, the whole thing would have collapsed. So at some point, someone should have gone, hang on, if, if it's that serious, what are we going to actually do to remedy this? But the problem is they can't remedy it because they don't want to accept some brutal realization that the Western Empire is over, US Germany is over, the dollar's in in its final days. And the reason I mention this, we go back to the conversations these people had with the Chinese and the Russians in the late 90s saying... This is the end game, this is where the West's going, and here we are twenty three, twenty-four years later. That's exactly where we are.
2: And and you've lifted the lid off this very nicely. And and and, and Paul, really I think the next time and, and we talked that you would definitely like to come back again, next time we can drill down into some some more of this, but I think I always like to end up thinking, well, what's our action point? What, what, what can we do? We're stuck on this. We're stuck in the West here. And, and so really, I think the, you know, obviously (laughs) it's a lie from the vault (laughs) production. Um, And obviously we talk a lot about gold and we talk a lot about silver and the need to own physical. So I think the only action point that I would suggest is right now what we can do is take responsibility for ourselves because we can't trust what our leaders are doing. And literally, there's one option. You do what the big guys are doing. Do, do what these countries are doing. Is go take some... I'm not talking about borrowing money. I'm talking about take buying... Buy some physical gold. As you say, it's insurance too. Buy some physical gold, physical silver. Silver is actually a great bet too because you can buy little one-ounce coins that... Maybe they're worth 50 a $100. I mean, at some point, they're going to be great barter items. So it's a really good thing to listen to what's going on here. You've lifted the lid off some very, very disturbing things, but they should turn us into a, into, into a positive action. And that is to buy some physical, at least get some hedges going here. And let this thing play out because sure as heck, there's one big footprint that we've been watching, Paul. And that's the Bank of International Settlements squaring up all their leases this year, 50 years of accrued leases. Suddenly, NSFR compliance coming in for gold, not for any other asset class. And suddenly we've got the liquidity providers being forced to when you offer gold to have physical gold to back up those positions. Uh, the Bank of International Settlements, look at their footprints, they have just literally squared over 500 tonnes of remaining leases and swaps that, was, that they started the year with when NSFR conditions were, 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 were actually enforced. And what do you think these guys are doing? If these guys are covering, what do you think we should be doing? And I guess that's the question that I've been posing to people quite recently.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's yeah for me. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I don't offer people financial advice, but my my argument is yes. I mean, I, I I own gold and silver, and I have done for a for a long time. Ironically, I first bought a load of silver very cheap in the aftermath of late, <laughs> so it goes back a long time. And yeah, I'm a big advocate of it. It's it is. It's an insurance policy, and it. And it's to protect you against all eventualities, whatever. We don't have a crystal ball. We can't say with absolute clarity and certainty what will happen. But I'll make a point because, yeah, I have said some things that people might find a bit disturbing or unnerving. But look, the Soviet Union and Russia collapsed. And for all the problems we have, we're not the Soviet Union and Russia. Nations can collapse, but things always come back. And that's exactly what will happen with the West. If what the collapse means in reality, we can't quantify at this point. And that will depend on policy making decisions. Because for me, at some point, someone's going to have to go and sit down and be an adult and say to the multipolar world, to the global south, the Chinese, the Russians look, we know it's over. We need to work out some way of of mitigating at least some of the risk potentially rather than waiting for for that day to to come after you know serious problems actually manifest themselves over and above the obvious problems that already exist that they're trying to mask and at some point we will we'll come out the other side and the world in the west will have to be a very different place and and i see it as a positive so as much as i say all this i'm only saying it because It's for me, it's a reality and it's better to be prepared for a reality, but equally just be objective and say, you know, it's not a time for people to lose their heads and think it's Armageddon and we're we're all doomed and and it's over. No, quite the contrary. But the only slight concern I do have, well, slight is, uh, is being diplomatic, is who in the West do we have who is going to politically lead us through the enormous challenges there is i don't know anyone off the top of my head in the west who i think is going to grab the grasp of the mantle and make decisions that we need to make but maybe when the time comes there will be somebody to do that but we have to just be realistic that we have lived beyond our means we've abused our position in the world and eventually, there was always going to be payback for this. You, you can get away with it for so long. But even if you start printing money and, and overtly and covertly bailing financial institutions and all manner of other things going on, hidden away, I mean, there's at least $100 trillion missing off the US balance sheet. We don't know exactly. It could be more. What's that? I mean, so there's all sorts of things going on to try and keep the illusion going, but the illusion is is giving way to reality. And, and that's irrefutable. And it's no fault of people like you and I. It's the fault of endless corruption, mismanagement and, and a whole bunch of other problems. Uh, but it, it's something we have to face. And all we can do in our own way is to try and mitigate some of those problems, as you say, by trying to preserve what have wealth preservation. I know for people that can be difficult and for some people impossible. And but unfortunately that's the sad reality of life. But we need to just be position ourselves as best as possible. And hopefully the the implosion or collapse isn't as severe as those words might imply. But that involves investing a lot of political capital in admitting failure and we know in the West Politicians and the system never will ever admit failure. They'll always blame someone else or try to to somehow find an excuse. But they're going to run out of excuses far sooner rather than later. And then that's that moment of realization. And that's a very precarious position because how is the average Western person going to react to that? We have to hope they react rationally, but you can see a lot of people acting irrationally. And that poses also significant problems. But we'll get through it one way or the other. And at some point, maybe five, ten years down the line, we'll be talking about the United States being, as I've said before, a great nation amongst equals where the U.S. has regained its trust in the world. People see it as a valuable partner. And if the U.S. does this, not only is it hugely beneficial for the United States, but also for the world. So as much as we're critical of the West and the United States, if they actually start to do the right thing, that will be hugely beneficial. And ultimately, I think it will happen. It's just how long does it happen? What is the process to get there? And how much resistance will there be to doing that? Or how much the lack of resistance and 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 just allowing this process to happen, it'll be a lot quicker. Otherwise, the risk is it could drag on for a very long time. And create enormous instability in the process.
2: Well Paul what what we're doing here is we're opening our eyes and I think this is the important part and I think the service that you you bring to people as well um, and and perhaps you could just uh, quickly mention your serious report, Uh, you're also on Twitter and um, so perhaps you could just because people will want to look more into this and 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 you're opening up a forum for them to do so 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 paul could could you just quickly tell people how they can find you
0: yeah thank you so yes we have obviously on twitter we're at the serious report we're very active on that we have a website which is the serious and yes well, we fundamentally finance what we're doing with we have a podcast series which is equivalently five podcasts a week it's about 100 minutes roughly sometimes we do two podcasts which is 40 minutes but 100 minutes a week and it has been we've done it for six years and it details uh, all the sort of changes in unipolar world the the demise what observing things like we predicted the repo crisis in january of 2019 before it actually happened etc and so we're looking for key markers in the sad decline of the west and also you know discussing all the developments of the rise of multipolarity and we kept it we've never increased the price it's very cheap because we want to make it affordable it's only four dollars 75 a month and if you subscribe for a year you get a month free and we think it's good value for money and we've done nearly 1600 podcasts now i wasn't sure when we started how long we would do it for or where it would go and we just kind of my wife one day said, why don't you start doing this? So if people complain, I always say, blame her. It's her fault. She calls, she's, <laughs> she's the problem, you know, jokingly. But, um, but yes, we do that. And we, you know, we've had a lot of very long-term subscribers. We have a lot of interest and in people keep subscribing. And the truth is we, we made it a subscription-based because we tried to do things conventionally through monetizing. And back in twenty sixteen everything demonetized us within an hour of us trying to monetize it. So we went we can't make money. And you know, I put we put a lot of effort in. It's only my wife and I who do this and we put a huge amount of effort in. And truth is I'm not doing it for nothing. I mean, you know, so but we keep it very affordable and we will keep doing it because there's a big story still unfolding. And for however long this has relevance, I don't know. But Certainly, for the long term foreseeable future we'll still be doing this and uh, and that's effectively what we do and and we've had a very good track record and of talking things in the past and observing things that we you know feel sometimes goes completely under the radar. No one thinks it's important, but it's critically important in the broader context. Just one very quick point in twenty eighteen Putin made a speech to Russian lawmakers about. Russia's military capability and I said at the time this will be the biggest single most important statement in a hundred years of history and the reason I said it because it changed the whole emphasis of of the U.S.'s perspective on the global war or a nuclear war or challenging Russia it changed everything so these kind of innocuous things that sometimes are the most important points and I was very lucky in a sense to know the people way back who gave me some very broad ideas, and I said, "Where do I start with this And they went, just start looking at what's going on. you know in broad terms what's happening you'll get to understand and I learnt a lot about I didn't know a lot about the Middle East and and place but I've over time built an understanding got have got to know people and I talked to people and I've learnt a lot along the way myself, so I'm not only. I've I've it's very fortunate to have met these people and to be give me some grounding but for me it's been very enjoyable as well along the way so i I'm, for that I'm very grateful it's not it's not a labor of love or anything it's actually I enjoy doing what I do and and to be able to do that in this world is something we should cherish obviously
2: very true Paul and I thank you for bringing all of this to the table um, for us to, to, for our subscribers, so this is new information. It's a different way of looking at things. It's, it's education. And I think that's what we're all about here. Just, you know, again, it's about opening your eyes and, and making decisions and ultimately taking responsibility for oneself by, by taking the best choice you can based upon the information you've got. So I do strongly encourage people to come and visit you, uh, subscribe, Uh, get on board and uh, but thank you so much for joining us today Paul and I do really would love you to come back and uh, we'll drill down a little more here because my goodness me there's a massive subjects here to go through.
0: Yeah well thank you it's been a real pleasure and yes of course I will gladly come back I think we scratched the surface and there's much more detail to go into in various sort of areas of the rise and fall of unipolarity and multipolarity. So yeah, it'd be a real pleasure to do that. And yeah, thank you. It's I've really enjoyed it and hopefully it's given people and it uh, sort of maybe sort of a different insight from my perspective as to what's happening. And it is. Ultimately, this is an educational process of us understanding what's going on and just having to sometimes accept things we might not particularly find palatable. But for me, it's just dealing with reality. I'm not you know, I I might say things about Russia, and people think it's pro-Russian. It's not. It's just this is reality. This is, and we the West needs to face reality. And 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 it might not seem palatable, but this is just how it is. And it's better to be, as I say regularly on Twitter, it's better to be informed than entertained.
2: Well, I thanked you, Paul, but I'm going to thank your wife for making you do it. <laughs> 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 So
1: on that note, on that note, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew McGuire and London Paul for another fascinating discussion. And remember, buy physical and make sure it's one-to-one and understand the difference between what Andy affectionately calls the casino paper gold and silver markets and the actual physical gold and silver markets. They're not the same. Don't be fooled. And there you have it. That's all we have for you today on another phenomenal episode of live from the vault so please help us spread the word about this channel by hitting that like button sharing and subscribing and click on that bell if you'd like to be notified as each episode goes live and with that we'll see you next time right here on live from the vault see you then